I want things my way. If I were really, really honest, I would have to admit that that is often kind of where my heart is. I want things to be done my way. I want people to do things my way. And I often want my way more than I want God's way. A year after my wife Jennifer and I were married, we uh, went on a uh, uh, journey together to, um, that, that sounded real good, didn't it? We went uh, to uh, Long Beach, California for a church conference, and the church that I was pastoring at the time went ahead and they paid for uh, the first week, and we, since we were out there, we were like, hey, let's stay a second week uh, for vacation. And so we did, and I wanted to find like a really, really nice, you know, resort, like really luxurious that she and I could uh, just enjoy and have a week, you know, in California. Uh, And uh, I have a picture of the room. Here it is. If you're not sure, that is a dorm room. Uh, It's at Laverne University in Laverne, California, and it cost $11 a night. Hey, I figured I splurged, you know, I mean, I went over 10 and, uh, so that's, that's where we were at. And, uh, Jen had this great idea. She's like, let's move, you know, the beds together. And then she couldn't keep her hands off of me, you know? And so I, I don't know, but that's the way it was, you know, and just ask her. That's the truth. Um, well, on the very first evening we were like, well, we don't want to stay there. So we got in our rented little Corsica car and we started driving and we went to um, San Bernardino Valley and it was so beautiful. We're like, hey, this is so, I mean, we don't want to go back to that, you know, so let's keep on going. So we kept on driving and we eventually uh, got to the Mojave Desert and that was beautiful. And we get to Barstow and that's awesome. We pulled off. And then we looked and we noticed that there was a a wreck on the other side on uh, Interstate 15 coming the other way. And I looked at Jen and she looked at me and I was like, are you thinking what I'm thinking? And she's like, well, what are you thinking? I'm like, I think we should keep on going. And then she said this, really? Now, when you've only been married a year, when you hear really, you think, oh, man, they're excited about this, you know. 21 years later, I realized that really, really meant, you should, you're an idiot. Let's turn around, you know? So I'm like, no, I want my way. I want to be in control. I'm driving the car, sister. Sit back. We're going. So we kept driving a little bit further, and we came to this sign. Las Vegas, 116 miles. And I look at Jen, and she looks at me. I'm like, are you thinking what I'm thinking? She's like... No. I'm like, yeah, we need to go to Vegas. I've never been. You've never been. This is going to be great. She's like, I don't think that's a good idea, but she rolled her eyes. Whatever. Now, again, rolling of the eyes and whatever when you're in your first year of marriage means keep going. Um, 
21 years later, when they roll their eyes and they say whatever, that means abort ship. Like whatever you need to do that is not going to be good. So we kept driving. Well, we drove a little bit further and tension starting to rise in the car a little bit. And we hit this sign, Hoover Dam, next right. And I look at Jen, I'm like, are you thinking what I'm thinking? And she's like, didn't say a word. All of a sudden, her face starts getting red. Now, I'm thinking to myself, Hoover Dam, I've never been to Hoover Dam. This will be great. She gets irritated. She is tired. She's dead tired of me trying to control and power up on her and telling her what to do. She's like, no, we need to turn around right now. I'm like, we're not turning around. We're going to Hoover Dam right now. So we start driving. Now, they didn't have GPS back in 1994. Some of you who are in your 20-somethings right now are like, what? GPS? What? That's the only way I survive. But they didn't have it. They had this thing called a road atlas. You actually had to pull out this big book and it had like all the states and you had to find out like exactly how you were going to you know, get to where you're going. Now, from the road atlas, the California map from Interstate 15 to Hoover Dam was just a couple of centimeters. You know what I mean? It's not that far away. Little did I know that it was 50 miles away, and it's curvy, and you're going back and forth, and it's scary, and Jen starts getting car sick, and she's like, oh, gosh, I'm like, roll down the window. <laughs> Again, that's year one of marriage, you know, roll down the window. And so we finally arrived. She's sick and tired of me and this powering up. And trying to control the situation. And when we get there, I'm expecting that we're going to see this. But this is actually what we saw. It was midnight. (laughs) Everything was dark. All you could do is hear the water. You couldn't see anything else. And it was a tense time. And the next 24 hours in the little dorm room, was not putting the beds together. We were separated. And it all had to deal with the fact that I wanted control. I wanted power. I wanted my own way. Sometimes, you know, I ask myself, even today, why am I such a control freak? Like, why is it that I think I have to have so much power and use that power to control other people. Now, I'm sure I'm probably the only one here, right, with this issue, like no one else. Oh, look, no one's shaking their head. You know, oh, nice story, bud. Good. Woo. Yeah, we all struggle with that. Let me ask you this. Have you ever tried to use your uh, control in your life to control someone else? Maybe your spouse, maybe your kids, maybe your friends, maybe a boyfriend, maybe a girlfriend, maybe someone in your family. Maybe you have control issues at work. You get to work and you want to control everybody around you. They're not doing their job the way they should be. Man, they need to get rid of them. You try to control your secretary. You try to control all your coworkers. Each of us at different times, regardless of who we are, want things our way. I want things my way, and I will go to whatever links to get it. A husband wants his way. 
Typically, the thing that a husband will do if he's the breadwinner in the family is that he'll start pulling the money away. Say, unless you do this or this or this, I'm going to control you by pulling back the money. A wife, if they want her way or she wants her way, she pulls back sex. She says, nope, that's it, buddy. Now, for some reason, men cave into that a lot more than uh, the other way around, but it's the way it is. A child wants his or her way. What do they do? Jeez, I'll do anything. Why do they do that? They're trying to control you, trying to power up on you. A friend wants their way. What do they do? They befriend you on Facebook. Well, I guess it's unfriend, right? I'm not. I'm so involved. And they unfriend you, and all of a sudden you think, oh my gosh, why'd they unfriend me? Did they unfriend you? No, they didn't unfriend me. Did they unfriend you? Oh, do you? You? Oh my God. Oh, wait, wait, wait. And all of a sudden you're like, and then the friend's like, yeah, I got control now. A parent wants control. What do they do? They push their kids and push their kids and push their kids. And they're trying to live their lives through dreams for their kids. And they're controlling every single step. And in the issue of control, folks, human beings are great at trying to perfect it. Dr. Leslie Parrott has a book called The Control Freak, and he gives a list of several characteristics that uh, people would have. And he says these are the kind of characteristics uh, that people use to try to uh, power up to control other people. See if any of these fit you. He says this, most control freaks tend to be perfectionistic, critical, obsessive, irritable, demanding, rigid, and closed-minded. Now, I have a feeling that when I first started this teaching, if I would have said, how many of you are control freaks? Nobody would have raised their hand. You would have denied everything. You'd have said, oh, no, no, not me. It's somebody else. I think it's over there. You know. But... Even though you may not consider yourself a control freak, this is how you really know if you're a control freak or not. Ask the people closest to you. Do you think I have any issues with control? My wife, I was reading this, this, this book this week, and she saw it on the, the, uh, uh, like the counter, and she picked it up, and, and I was having some control issues of things not going my way. And she goes, uh, you've been reading this? I'm like, hey, you want to go back to Vegas? You know? <laughs> Just joking, just joking. But this is the thing, folks. You may not live as a control freak, but you visit control freak land all the time. You visit it, and you want your way more than anything else. Have you ever been critical of someone? And you were simply critical so that you could get your way to get them to do what you wanted them to do. So you were critical. Have you ever demanded perfection out of someone else? Have you ever used this, this phrase before? That's not good enough. That's not good enough. Why? Because you want to get your way. Have you ever got so obsessed about one particular thing? Uh, I've seen this happen in family systems before. Uh, you know, the, the, the mom or the dad or somebody, this is what we're doing. They're so focused and other people are saying things and no. And everyone has to follow shift. They all have to control it because they're obsessed about one thing and they're not going to have perspective in anything else. Have you ever been cranky or contentious about something or touchy or testy just so you can get your way? 
Or have you ever kind of thought that no one else can do this better than me? You might be a control freak. You know what I mean? Do you ever find yourself insisting or demanding that other people do things your way? Do you have rigid rules? This is the only way that we do things. And if you don't follow that, who cares? Because my way is the best way. Do you ever cut people off in mid-sentence? Like someone's talking, and all of a sudden you're thinking, this is stupid. <laughs> and then you just like cut them off right in the middle of it, and you're like, I don't care about your perspective. This is what is what you need to do. This is what you need to know. I know the truth. You don't. Now, the reality is, some of us here this morning could say, oh, I relate to a few of those things. Others of us would say, man, there's a lot of those things. And some of you, you relate to all of them. But when it comes to control and it comes to power, we are all guilty at different times of giving into it. You see, this is the problem with control. And this is the problem with a power when it's abused. And it's this. And it's our big idea for this morning. A controlling spirit blocks God's spirit. Every time you have a controlling spirit, it blocks God's spirit. During high school, I played on the uh, high school basketball team. I use the word played kind of loosely. Um, I was on the team all four years. I set the bench a lot, you know. My daughters sometimes are like, how, do you, how is it you know all your school songs and all that? And um, mom doesn't. Because I heard them all the time because I was on the bench, you know, I wasn't in the game. And uh, I was like an amazing practice player. Like if they had a Hall of Fame for practice players, I'd be in the Hall of Fame. You know what I mean? That's how good I was at practice. And one of the drills that we did every single day was a blockout drill. And the one drill that the coach loved the most was uh, he would get a group. You don't have to leave now. It's not that bad. (laughs) Sorry. Hey, uh, so the, the, block, the blockout drill was, you know, here's a circle, and uh, everyone would be in a circle of players, and then there would be another circle outside of that circle, and then the coach would take the basketball, and he would drop it in the middle of the circle, and the guys on the inside of the circle, their responsibility was to block out any other person from getting that ball. And they could do anything. They could hit you. They could go through your legs. They could elbow you through. And every time we did this drill, there was blood. I mean, there were elbows. There were anything you could imagine. But I'll tell you what. We got really, really good as a team when it came to blocking out other people. Now, here's the point. You and I do the same thing with God. We do. The ball represents your way and my way. And every once in a while, your way and my way is not all that great. And God wants to convict us or challenge us or change something. And when he gets ready to try to get to the ball, we get in block out position and we block God out so that he doesn't tell us what to do with our way. And some of us have perfected that. Now, the good news is we're not the only ones who have gotten really good at the blockout drill of blocking out God. 
Because throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, there are tons of characters from Adam and Eve all the way to through the end that understood what it meant to try to block God out. But maybe the person who more than anyone else had an issue with control and power was a guy by the name of David. Now, let me give you a little bit of background about David. David was the youngest in his family, and he was a shepherd. He was a shepherd boy. I mean, he in the morning it was sheep, in the evening it was sheep. I mean, there were just sheep everywhere. Here are sheep, there are sheep everywhere, sheep, sheep. I mean, that's what David was dealing with. And uh, he, you know, they say, hey, if you're having trouble sleeping, just start counting sheep. David was good at that, man, like, because he was just around sheep all the time. But God said, you're not just going to be a little shepherd boy forever. One day you're going to be a king. I've got greater plans for you. And David's like, okay, God, I'm open to anything. And he became king of Israel. He had power like no other king had ever had in the history of Israel. And during his reign, it was like Camelot. It was the best part of the country had ever known. Economic development was wonderful. They were expanding. Everything was going at an all-time high. But the greatest thing about David was that this is how he is described. This is what the Bible says. A man after God's own heart. That's who he's described after. He's like, I'm after your heart, God. You tell me to go, I'll go. You tell me to stay, I'll stay. You ask me to talk, I'll talk. If you ask me to be quiet, I'll be quiet. You just ask anything and I'll do it, God. I want your spirit, not my controlling spirit. Now, you have to realize, folks, that power in and of itself is not a bad thing. There's a lot of people that use their power to have immense influence in this world. They use their power to care for people, to uh, help people, to care for people, to change the world because of their status of power. But when we try to control things and we try to say that what I want is more important than what anyone else wants, that is when trouble starts. You see, this is the thing. The problem with Adam and Eve at the very beginning in the Bible, and the problem with David that we're going to look at today, is not the fact that they sinned, although that is a big problem, but the biggest problem is that they wanted to be their own God. They wanted to control their lives more than anyone else. And we want to be more, to have more, to know more. And when God says no, we block him out. We get in the block out drill and we block him out because we want our way rather than his way. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, David, who's been using his power for such good, eventually turns the other way. And because of being a control freak, it leads to a road of destruction. Verse 1, we read. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, which was his right-hand man, the general of the army, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So spring was the time that they went out to war. Why wouldn't you go out to war in winter? 
scald. Who wants to do it then, right? So the spring was the time to do that. And David, though, sitting there, he's like, I don't want to go. I don't have to go. You can't make me go. I am not going because I'm king. I'm not doing it. I want to do my own thing. Let the rest of them go out. I don't want to go. And you would say, well, that sounds all right. He's the king. He can do whatever he wants. But sometimes we forget what happened earlier in the story. In 1 Samuel 8.20, it says this. The Israelites actually gave a position description for their king. And this was part of it. It says that they will go out before us and fight our battles. And David knew that because all of his life he had done that. But not this time. Now, it's generally believed that David was around 50 years of old, uh, 50 years old. In other words, he uh, wasn't an old man yet, but he wasn't quite the golden boy anymore. And women didn't look at him quite the way that they once did. And he thought, man, I got to do something different. So he got Rogaine, you know what I mean? Put that on there. Get, you know, some of you know what I'm talking about. And, uh, you know, got all that together. And uh, then uh, went ahead and, uh, like, got a workout place, you know, in his palace. He's like, man, I'm going to start, you know, lifting and pumping iron and doing some things. You know, I'm going to get back in shape again. But he's having a little other trouble, so he had to take some Metamucil, you know, to kind of add to his royal diet, make sure everything's flowing through, you know, and, you know, he's had a little trouble there. But, but what, did, what did David really want? Like, what did he really want? He wanted to be in control. He wanted power. He wanted to feel young again. He wanted to feel alive. He was restless. He was lonely. He was a little bit bored. And so he decided that he would stay home because he was the king and he had the power and control to do whatever he wanted. And because of that, he just started blocking God out. But what he did not do The one thing he did not do was he never asked God what God wanted. Rather, he took control in his hands and he blocked God out. Verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. Now, what I would like you to do, that word sent... Every time we go through it in the text today, I'd like you to circle it. Here's the first time that you might want to circle it there. Because the word is used constantly through this passage, and mostly it's used about David. Mostly it's used about the way that David kind of plays God in everyone's life by trying to control them and power up on them and telling them what to do. He becomes a control freak. He sends people this way and that way, and they have to go because he's king. So it's used here because David sends out for information about this woman. David's on a power trip. It's like, ah! And he sends somebody out. And he's drifting right now from temptation to action, but he's not quite there yet. But he makes plans. By the way, some people will read this passage. I've heard pastors do this really, really bad. And they'll look at Bathsheba, and they kind of make Bathsheba look like the bad person. Well... When you look at the text very closely, um, you know, why does she go out and bathe in the middle of the afternoon? I mean, isn't she just like setting herself up? 
Well, most likely this is what happened in the afternoon. It was the warmest part of the day. And throughout the night, they would collect rain or throughout the week, they would collect rain and then it would warm up. And so it was the best time that you could actually take a bath was in the afternoon. And why wouldn't a woman take a bath during the afternoon? Because all the guys are where they should be at war, right? They should be out fighting for us. It's probably just a customary deal here. But no one ever asked about her opinion. They don't ask her what she thought. She just is an object to David. Maybe she'll solve his boredom problem. Maybe she'll take away his feeling of loneliness. You see, folks, this is the thing. When the sin of power gets a hold of you, you begin to treat other people like objects. You're like, no, I don't. I never do. Yeah, you do. When your way becomes more important than anyone else's way, you treat people like objects. They become expendable to you. So David sends for information, and he starts to control the whole situation. He powers up, and he blocks out God. Verse 3, the servant asks, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, this is a gutsy thing. Think about that. You're a servant. Like, you're the lowest of the low in the whole palace. And the servant's like, uh, hey, David, uh, maybe you got the address wrong or something, but this is somebody's wife. This is somebody's daughter. You better be careful. Have you ever noticed this before? I hear it from both believers and non-believers. That sometimes when you're heading down a slippery slope, you start to get whispers. You may say it's your conscience. You may say it's the Holy Spirit. You may say it's somewhere in between. But you get a whisper of like, maybe I shouldn't do that. And sometimes you'll even have friends that will come around you and they'll say, hey, uh, be careful. And it's almost like there's a warning light being given to you. Now, we have these kind of warning lights in our day. They're quite con- con- uh, quite concrete. And it's called a traffic light, right? Traffic light. When you come to a traffic light, there are generally three colors. Two of these are very straightforward, right? Red means... Boy, there's a long delay on what you just said, you know? That, that does not surprise me. That's why I have it in first celebration too. You don't stop. I've seen you out here in the church or the Y parking lot. People are leaving. And I'm thinking, oh, you know what? They've just felt like Jesus up in them and they have sweet thoughts and everything's feeling good. And they get out there in their car and like somebody pulls them from you. You're like, ooh, you don't stop. You just keep going. Red means, just for those of you that are not too sure, it actually means to stop, to stop. Okay, And green means what? Oh, look at that. Boy, you guys are good at that. You know that one, don't you? You're like, oh yeah, I know that one. I know that one. I know that means go. Much better. And then there's yellow. Yeah, that's what I thought. You know? You don't know what yellow means, do you? It's very interesting. Out of the three colors, this one is the most interesting and the most ambiguous of the three. It's interesting to watch what people do with yellow. Some people, when they come to a yellow, they actually break and they slow down. 
Others hit the what? Yeah, gas, like metal to the pedal, baby. I'm going through. I had someone yesterday that was following me to my uh, daughter's uh, soccer game, and uh, you know we're up on six or we're up on uh, three thirty-two and getting ready to get off on the ramp uh, to get on sixty-nine. And I pull out, and there's these cars that are just like coming, and I'm like, surely this person is not going to do this. You know, it's like caution, caution, and whoo, right through that. I hear, you know, you know, the horn being honked and all kinds of stuff. And this was the problem: my wife and kids are like in the van behind me. Like, what's up? But there was no caution. There was no yellow. There was just like, we're going to make it, you know? Well, God sends David a warning signal. Isn't this Bathsheba? Like, somebody's daughter, somebody's wife? And typically, because David was so spiritually in tune with God, if he would have just had a hint of that, Typically, he'd have been like, oh, God, what am I thinking? That's right. That is. I'm sorry. God, I repent. Please forgive me. Everything's up. But he doesn't do that. Because he's in blockout position. And he's blocking God out. He wants control. He wants his way. But David continues on. And he doesn't do very good with yellow lights. He just pushes on the accelerator, goes right through the warning lights. And this is why I'm asking this this morning. Because there's some of you that you're at one of these lights right now. And there's a temptation in your life. Might be financial, might be sexual, might be emotional, might be some relationship. But you're at a caution. You know that God's been asking you to slow down at some place, some temptation. And the question is, what are you going to do? Are you going to choose your controlling spirit or are you going to choose God's spirit? And God, I really believe, has brought you here today that for some of the cautions in your life, there might be one that he's really asking you today to give up control and to go his way. And the question is, will you listen? Will you listen and obey God's spirit? Verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her. What's the word again? Sent, yeah. And this time, he's not sending for information. He's actually sending for the woman. Like, bring her to me. Now, up to this point, everything has worked out David's way. Everything Works according to plans. He sees, he wants, he inquires, he finds out. He sends for her, he sleeps with her, and then he sends her home. He has fun, and then he is done and kicks her to the curb. He's totally in control. But then all of a sudden, something happens that wasn't in his script. Verse 5. Bathsheba conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. What's the word again? Ah, yeah, there's that word again. But only this time, ah, David's not the sender. He's the sendee. He's the one receiving the message. 
Folks, sin always sets in motion spiritually destructive forces that you cannot control. Every time you're going down that road and you think I can be in control and I can cover up and I can make things right, you are out of control. You can't do it. Sin always does that. It may be external forces like a pregnancy in this situation or something else. It may be internal forces, the loss of your integrity, the loss of your character, the loss of innocence. But sin will set into motion forces that you cannot control. Now, the real problem at this point is this. David's controlling spirit, it's like an overdrive. He's trying to control everything, and he thinks that he's still in control. Verse 6. So David, what's the next word? Ah, yeah, there's that word again, sent this word to Joab. Now, again, Joab's the general of the army. Again, here's the word. What is it? Send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab what? Sent him to David. Now, David is just out of control at this point. And he is in block-out position. He is blocking God out. Verse 7. When Uriah... Now, who's Uriah? Just want to make sure everybody knows. Who's Uriah? Boy, there's a lot of words out there. I don't know. It's, it's somebody's husband. It's Bathsheba's husband. Came to him. David asked him, now look at the deception, the damage to David's character. David asked Uriah how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. That's kind of weird. Why would he tell him to go wash his feet? No, no, no. You don't know Hebrew, do you? You know what watch the feet meant? Get busy. Just get busy. You've been away at war for such a long time. We had a woman here uh, who, uh, whose husband's been in California for a very long time. He's in the military. And she was going to go see him this week. And last week, I, you know, I taught about sex. And I told her, I said, don't worry about anything I said. You just take care of your husband and let your husband take care of you. You know what I mean? And that's what basically is exactly what happens in this moment he says go have relations go home and sleep with your wife so uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him but uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and he did not go down to his house david sent spies to try to find out did this actually happen when david was told uriah did not go home he asked haven't You just come from a distance. Why didn't you go home? And Uriah said this, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. Do you understand what that means? The ark is the presence of God. God's in a tent. God's working hard for us as a nation. He's moving. And my Master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. The guys are still fighting. And you'll hear this from military guys all the time. They'll come back from home and they'll be like, Ah, man, I just, what I hate most is I've left my brothers. How could I 
Go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife. As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Now, what, what's David going to do? It's like, I've got to control this thing more. I need more control. I need more power. I've got to power up on this. I've got to try harder. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. That happens downtown Muncie, doesn't it? People hook up with somebody, and they're like, Hey, I want to control them. I want to power up on them. I'll tell you what, I get them drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat and among his master's servants. He did not go home. It's pretty ironic, folks. This may have slipped your mind. Uriah the Hittite. You know what that means? He's not a Jew. He is not a citizen of Israel. He is a foreigner. He is a foreign fighter. And the foreign fighter has more to honor God's will drunk than David does sober. So how far is David going to take this situation? Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to Uriah. Notice this. The guy's taking his own death sentence in his hand. He's taking the message that he's supposed to die to the Jew. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. David is willing to murder so that he could keep control, so that he could keep power, so that he could do it. And folks, this isn't an act of passion. This is calculated, cold-blooded killer. And he's willing to allow Joab to go out. And, and did you notice something that's in there? He can't just kill Uriah by himself, but he's got he's to send how many men? He's got to send a lot more men, right? Not just him by himself. You've got to send a whole bunch of people now that are going to die. Why? Because one control freak, one person who wants to power up on other people is running the show. And he deliberately sacrifices large numbers of innocent men to be butchered so that Uriah will die. Then he says in verse 18, Joab sent David a full report on the battle. He instructed the messenger... After you have given to the king a detailed report on the battle, if he flares in anger, say, and by the way, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So here's blackmail that's going on now between Joab and David. This dark conspiracy. And David's response, so cynical. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent. uh, There's that word again. Joab had sent him to say, The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came up against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at my servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah, though, he's dead too. 
David told the messenger, Stay, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. Can you imagine this is the same God, the same guy that wrote the 23rd Psalm? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. And your life and my life's the same way. In one moment, we're so open to God. And Chris Bunch, I'm so open. God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do whatever you say. And the next time, I am the control freak, and I'm trying to power up on people, and I'm trying to do that. And David's life is such that kind of dichotomy. In the same mouth, he says praises and prayers to God, but in the same mouth, he has control and power and deceit and hypocrisy and darkness. And David's left with the choice. Is he going to repent and is he going to turn toward God and, and, and be open to God's spirit or is he going to control the situation? Well, David commits himself to a strategy of control. He's going to do a cover-up. It's like cancer. But once the cover-up starts, it spreads and spreads and spreads. You can't cover up everything. But the cover-up's on. Look at the first part. When the time of mourning was over, David was... There's that word again. David sent... Someone to bring her to his house. She became his wife and bore a son. Ah, it worked. David's good. It all worked. He used his power and he won. He got away with adultery and he got away with murder. But no one knows. Only just a few. You see, David thought that the great danger of his life was that somebody might find out. He was worried that somebody might find out. But of course, you and I know that is not the greatest danger. His greatest danger was that no one would find out. And his soul would be utterly destroyed. That's always the way it is with the sin of power. When we sin, when we become afraid that someone might find out. But again, this isn't the greatest danger. Our greatest danger, folks, is this, that nobody will find out. I can't tell you how many people I've counseled, and they're like, Pastor, you're the only one I've ever told this to. I'm like, what kind of freedom is in that? I, why the cover-up? And they go to their graves, and they're covered up with dirt, but they've been covering up the whole time. Our greatest danger is that nobody will find out and will just live in darkness. Finally, chapter 11 comes to an end. We're introduced to a character. Uh, kind of interesting in this. This character is never really mentioned, never talked about until now. Verse 27. But the thing David had done was evil in the sight of the, well, who is it? At the very end. David covered this up from everyone. And so he thought, man, I'm controlling this situation. I've got it under control. But there is one person, folks, who knows everything. And he will call everyone to account. And his justice will not be evaded. You cannot do a cover-up on him. And so this becomes the question. In light of David's story, what should you and I do? Well, I believe that this morning, you and I are at a crossroads. 
And it looks like this. There is a path that leads to a controlling spirit. And that controlling spirit, folks, it always leads to death. And there is another path that is God's spirit. And that spirit always leads to life. And we've been talking about it the last three weeks. But there are three issues in life that consume us. And we're always left with an option. Money, sex, and power. And for some of you right now, you are holding so tightly to your money and you're like, I'm going to control it and I'm going to control it. And God's saying, why don't you open up your hand and I'll help you with finances and let things go and be more generous. And you're like, no, I'm going to control. And you're asking myself, am I going to hold tightly or am I going to have an open hand to God's spirit, including how I'll manage my money? Some of you are at a crossroad when it comes to your sex life. Maybe you've been going down your your path and it's leading more and more to sexual immorality. You're hooking up every weekend. You're like looking at porn more and more and more. Or you're thinking about an affair and your mind is like out of control every time you see a person of the opposite sex and sexually explicit thoughts. And you're at a crossroad and you're asking yourself, am I going to keep going my way, controlling spirit way, or am I going to go God's way? Will I stop? blocking God out. And then there's others of us that the issue is power. We are control freaks. We're going through life trying to control everything that we can imagine. And we're blocking God out in the midst of that. And we have a choice to make. Are we going to go our way or are we going to go God's way? And I think today that God He wasn't mentioned until the end of the story. He knows. And he reaches out with hands from heaven. And he says, turn back to me. Turn back to me. You see, the end of the story doesn't end in chapter 11. goes on in chapter 12. And there is a man that confronts David and David finally he stops the cover up and he goes before God and you would think ah how's God going to receive him and God receives him beautifully open arms you're forgiven you're loved but he had to give up control he had to give up power and God's waiting for some of you right now you're at a crossroad with maybe one of these three issues and you're tired but you're holding on And you're trying to hide. You're trying to cover things up. But if I were to look at your heart, and if you could, if you're just like, oh man, if I could just come clean, and I could come home. If I could just come home to God. And God's like, come home. Stop doing things in your power. Do them in my power. And so, I'm going to give you a moment right now just between you and God. It's not between you and the person beside you. It's not between you and me, but just between you and God. That you would ask God, where is the issue in my life that I'm trying to control? And that you would just confess it to him. Say, I'm sorry, God. I'm trying to control this area and whatever that is. That you wouldn't cover up, but you would be open to stop blocking God out and to open up your spirit. So let's take a moment. If you're new here today, if you've never 
been to the jar and you're like, I don't know about this prayer thing or whatever, just listen to music. But if you're a person that's trying to honor God, I just invite you right now to close your eyes, bow your head, and uh, to ask God, God, where in my life am I trying to control things that are blocking you out? Loving God, we acknowledge this morning that we have brokenness and struggles with sin. But we don't want to keep on going down the wrong path, God. We, we really do want to go your way. So we ask that not only you would hear our confession, God, of whatever that thing is we're trying to control, but that we would actually know right now that we are forgiven of it. And that as people walk out of this place today, God, they'll walk with a a forgiving power, a power that comes from you. And may you infuse them with a power, God, that is not their own, but is the power of your spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand. I'm going to invite the prayer team to come up. And uh, we were kind of looking at different ways how we were going to close tonight, or this morning. And uh, there's a scripture verse that came to mind. I thought we'd just read it out loud together. So as we end this, let's read this out loud. It is not by force, nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And this is the thing, folks. There are many things that you can change in your own power. But there are some things that you cannot change. And the, way you, the reason you can't change, because if you could have changed it, you would have already done it. But you can't because you're trying to control it. And the freedom comes when you say, there is power in the name of someone who is greater than my power. Because Jesus has power that is greater than anything that you would try to control. That there is power in the name of Jesus, power to heal, power to care, power to love, and power to change. And so I'm just thinking today, why don't we end on an upbeat kind of way that as we walk away from our trifecta series, that we understand that there is a power that can change all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let's sing.